Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. In the U.S. Senate, there was a hearing to certify the new NORAD commander, North American Air Defense Commander, American General. And as that was going on, Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska took a real run at Mr. Trudeau and about and at Canada for our lack of spending, appropriate and necessary, and agreed to spending toward both NATO and uh, and NORAD. Have a just have a listen to Senator Sullivan as he's speaking with Lieutenant, or they say in the United States, Lieutenant General Gregory Guillo, I guess that's how he pronounce it, and and telling the general that it's time to confront his Canadian counterparts on the issue of spending. Listen to this. I do want to mention, and it's you know not always polite, but I'm going to do it here anyways. The Wall Street Journal on July 12th had an editorial entitled "Canada is a military free rider in NATO." Mr. Chairman, I'd like to submit that for the record. And it goes on to talk about Ottawa's feeble commitment to the alliance at the Vilnius summit. Uh, They should have been put at the kids' table. I was actually at the Vilnius summit last week in NATO. Canada is not even close to its 2% commitment. And it was common knowledge that Prime Minister Trudeau was trying to water down the Vilnius commitment to 2% as a floor. All of which is incredibly disappointing. I hope the Canadians are watching your confirmation hearing. Uh, General, you'll be working closely with Canada if confirmed. Can you commit to this committee that you can have discussions with the Canadians and say, hey, look, when you're not supporting NATO, when you're not supporting missile defense for North America, it's actually harmful to the alliance. Americans get frustrated when our allies don't pull their weight and with regard to NATO, Canada is not even close to pulling its weight. Can you commit to us to have those tough conversations, but important, with your Canadian counterparts? Yes, Senator. You can count on me to do that. Thank you. That's really important. So that's the Alaskan Senator, Dan Sullivan, speaking to the new commander or incoming commander for, for NORAD. Dr. Christian Liprecht joins us, Queen's University and Royal Military College, international security expert, fellow at the NATO College in Rome. And uh, his most recent book is Security, Cooperation, Governance, published by University of Michigan Press. Christian, those are, those are strong words from the center, not uh, unexpected. And, and NATO and, uh, and NORAD, particularly NATO members, have been increasingly critical of Canada's lack of spending. What do you make of that? How do you interpret that? What, what are you hearing? So I think Senator Sullivan's comments are not to be taken lightly. He's not a radical. He's a very well-informed individual, moderate in terms of sort of Republican views these days, somebody who knows the defense file very well. And of course, the defense file is a very key file. Uh, When you're in Alaska, he was recently a champion for the Ted Stevens Center on Arctic uh, Security Studies, which is the first regional study center for the U.S. military in decades. Um, He understands the Arctic. He understands climate change. He understands that the world is a challenging, tough, and dangerous place. And as he points out, he understands the alliance. He regularly attends alliance uh, meetings. Um, And I think it's... 
Uh, on the one hand, I think he understands that NORAD is a way to have leverage. The NORAD commander gets invited to Ottawa. He'll probably get an invite to the CDA-CDI conference in February to give a keynote. Uh, the deputy commander of NORAD was very clear before the Defence Committee um, about the significant spending and uh, defence challenges that Arctic security is facing. So he understands that NORAD is a way to have leverage over Canada outside of NATO. But I think he's also making a very sending a very important signal that Canada always thinks like you know the the can is this integral part of NATO and can is this integral part of NORAD and I think what he's the signaling here is the Americans can do it alone they don't need the Canadians to play that it's up to the Canadians to decide whether they want to have leverage and what he's signaling is that clearly Prime Minister Trudeau did not get what he wanted in terms of watering down the uh, the commitment in terms of the final communique so um, if you want to get uh, if you if you want to get your way, it, you need more than just a seat at the table. You need to have uh, the ability of clout at that table. And he's signaling that the prime minister did not have clout, or at least did not have the clout uh, that uh, that he had hoped to have. And he's also signaling that look, NORAD in Ottawa is always the sense that the Americans need Canada to defend the continent, and uh, and 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 that NORAD is sort of integral in terms of the binational and bilateral partnership with Canada. And what he's signaling is that it's not. If the Canadians don't invest, the Americans will just do it on their own. But it also shows the importance of alliances, um, both in terms of NATO as well as the functional arrangements that the U.S. have um, uh, in terms of NORAD, that these are also ways for the Americans to hurt the kittens. It's a way to have leverage over your allies. Um, and so uh, it shows that Canada, to some extent, is also still important to the Americans because uh, kicking them out or sort of marginalizing them uh, in these arrangements then reduces U.S. leverage over key allies such as Canada. So there was an interesting news story that followed uh, Senator Sullivan on Global News. Trudeau defends Canada's military spending against U.S. Senator Scolding. And Mr. Trudeau started talking about all the spending that's being done and all the plans to spend going forward. What do you make of that? And does that resonate at all, not, not only with the Americans, but with our NATO partners? So it's often said that there's three C's, uh, capabilities, commitments, and cash when it comes to defense. And the Canadians have said for years, don't worry about the cash. We've got the capabilities. We're making the commitments. That story worked during Afghanistan, but it hasn't worked since uh, the drawdown in Afghanistan. And um, when I was in D.C. in 2020, every time the cash issue came up about uh, the the their, their approach from the Americans was, you know, Christian, the Canadians need to stop talking about capabilities and commitments. They need to actually spend because they don't have the ability to have the capabilities that are required for the commitments of today. And that, of course, was long before uh, the Russian aggression towards the new version of the Russian aggression towards Ukraine. Um, and so I think what uh, what we see here is the prime minister understands what the narrative is that allies and in particular Washington wants to hear. The problem, of course, here is, I think, in terms of the cash that clearly the Americans are saying, whatever you're spending, it is nowhere near enough to get you to where we need you to be as a reliable partner and ally. 
And that, I think, has two important consequences. One is the Americans need the Canadians on a number of key files. I sometimes joke in Washington that the Canadian Armed Forces are the Americans' favorite foreign policy tool. And that's because there are many things in the world where the Americans have difficulty to get things done with countries that are hostile towards the Americans, but that are willing to work with the Canadians. And what we do in Southern Command, our frigate there in terms of the drug interdiction mission, for instance, is one key, uh, one key example. So Canada not spending... Uh, reduces significantly some of the ability for the U.S. in a difficult environment, think of Francophone Africa, for instance, to have the leverage that the Americans uh, that the Americans are ultimately looking for. It also, of course, reduces Canadian leverage on things like trade, softwood lumber, these types of disputes. What Senator Sullivan is signaling that his door is probably not going to be open uh, when the Canadian ambassador, Canadian minister comes calling about, can you do something for us on, uh, you know, watering down by American provisions or so, as the Americans often do to make sure that Canada is, uh, is included. Um, and so don't expect us to curry any favor uh, for us, me as an, as an Alaskan U.S. senator, if you guys aren't going to pony up. So, Christian, how, how are we doing? I look again at this uh, global news story, Trudeau Defense Canada's military spending against U.S. senators scolding, story by Aaron uh, D'Andrea from uh, Global News. And uh, he writes, in regards to NORAD, Ottawa has pledged around $40 billion to modernize the U.S.-Canada Continental Defense Organization, along with billions on purchasing F-35 fighter jets and building new naval ships. You know, this is like saying, well, yeah, you know, when Christmas rolls around, there's going to be something nice under the tree for you. I, I, if the tree's been bare Christmas after Christmas, I'm going to have a hard time believing that Santa's really coming. Is that how the, I mean, how do you assess what we're doing, how well we're doing? And again, let me come back to how our allies view us. I think much of what you hear from the prime minister is largely performative for domestic audiences. And I think our allies understand that and it expresses uh, allied frustration. Yes, the prime minister likes to announce lots of money. The reality is much of that money is not actually new money. It's money that had been previously announced. It's money that's reprofiled or it's money that's already in the defense budget to be spent. Um, and so, you know, we always need to distinguish between sort of new investments that were actually making, then think about that it costs about 10 times as much to do anything in the North than it does in the rest of Canada. So $40 billion actually becomes more like $4 billion if you build it in the South. And you can see that $4 billion in defense uh, doesn't actually go all that far. Uh, the I think you know, what we have here is a prime minister and I think also as chief of staff who understand that they're, they're very political as people. They're, they're fighters, they're political warriors. They know that defense is not going to get them any votes. They know they're down in the polls, and they know that the priorities for Canadians in the polls are costs of living, are issues of public safety, are health care. Defense doesn't even rank in the top 15. And so I think what they're trying to capitalize on, look, we're not going to win any votes with defense, but um, they risk losing votes uh, because it's controversial among that core liberal vote that is left, in particular, sort of some of the core voters in uh, downtown Toronto, uh, Montreal and Vancouver ridings. And so I think they've just simply decided that for pure political survival, this is not a file that they're going to invest in heavily. And so they're going to try to muddle through the way previous governments have. The problem, of course, is the prime minister is now 
made a commitment to Latvia in terms of the uh, brigade size strength that is basically equivalent to the sort of commitment that we had made to Afghanistan, 2,200 troops. Uh, but the problem is we have, of course, less equipment. We have older equipment. We have fewer people. And if you look in terms of real, uh, in terms of the real budget, we actually have less of a defense budget than we had at the time. And so it's not clear to me where those 2,200 troops will come from because the Afghanistan mission almost broke this organization at a time when this organization was still comparatively much better off. And of course, we don't have the equipment for that mission. We're missing some of the key artillery, we're missing anti-missile capability, we're missing anti-drone capability, all of which the government has said that, yes, it will purchase. But uh, what we understand is that these purchases were stripped out of the memorandum to cabinet when the government made this announcement. Uh, and so it made the announcement without also committing to the purchases. The government says that this will become part of a more coherent spending par package as parts of the defense policy update, but now there's some rumors that perhaps the defense policy update won't even happen. Uh, so the silver lining is that Minister Nan being moved to the Treasury Board, that perhaps the Prime Minister does have uh, a serious commitment to defense in terms of spending that is forthcoming and is putting her in that portfolio because she's proven her medal on procurement during the pandemic and she's proven her medal uh, on defense. But I think there's a majority of cabinet ministers that simply aren't interested in spending on defense. Uh, they have other priorities. And I think my sense is that's perhaps where Minister Nand wanted to get moved because she had a hard time uh, getting done, getting the things over the line that she thought uh, needed to be done. And I think with the cabinet shuffle, uh, the prime minister is signaling that uh, perhaps defense isn't really going to be a priority uh, with that new, uh, with the new cabinet either. Uh, so uh, um, we can hope that there's a silver lining in here that uh, people who are paid much better and have much more seniority than you and I uh, have visibility on, but I'm not confident. So we have uh, about 30 seconds. If you were to rate this country's military capability, not the men and the women, the 63,000 people in the uh, CAF, but the capability militarily to defend this nation without the Americans backing us on a scale of 1 to 10, where are we? Um, we know that the chief defense staff had made it clear that reconstitution needs to be the priority for this organization, rebuilding the organization, that we have to stop focusing so much on operations and on sustainment, and we need to rebuild. And what we hear from the prime minister, it's more on operations and no focus on the reconstitution sustainment piece. And I think that says you a lot about the uh, um, the, the disparity okay. between uh, where the military believes it needs to be in terms of operations and where the political authority uh, is deploying the assets that okay. it has left in the Canadian Armed Forces. I came across a story on Forbes.com about uh, two weeks ago that really got my attention, and that is that artificial intelligence is being used by some police to look for suspicious patterns of movement of a vehicle while simultaneously whipping through license plates databases with billions of records. There was one individual in New York who was driving a Chevy at average speed, but AI, artificial intelligence, identified the vehicle's behavior as suspicious and that the driver had been observed over a two-year period on a route typical for drug traffickers. So Westchester, New York police pulled over this car... And in 2022, they found 112 grams of cocaine, a semi-automatic pistol, and $34,000 in cash. Earlier this year, the driver pled guilty to a drug trafficking charge. Very interesting. 
But think about it. You're being watched by artificial intelligence. And I think they had something like, was it 434 uh, stationary cameras and, uh, yeah, 16 mobile cameras in the uh, police cars with this artificial intelligence technology. In this country, we have police who use automatic license plate readers, which alert the officers to expired licenses, registrations, and offenses, which, uh, you know, you, you don't have to pull somebody over for that information. Then you can, you can get it, and then you pull them over. I don't know. Uh, let's talk to Daniel Konikoff, who's the interim director of the Privacy Technology and Surveillance Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Daniel, thank you for joining us, and congratulations on your recent nuptials. Oh, thank you so much, Roy. I was not uh, expecting that, but I, I really appreciate the, the, the well wishes. Yeah, I wish you all the very best. Thank you very much. So wh wh when you think of what's going on in Canada, is the CCLA comfortable, all right with the, the, uh, the options that Canadian officers have, this automatic license plate reading system that doesn't alert to potential criminal behavior, but really alerts to the more, I guess, standard issues, expired licenses, registrations, and, mm -hmm. and such. Do you have issues with that? So this is a great question, and recently in Ontario, the OPP expanded its automatic license plate reader program to be rolled out to every car um, across the province. Um, and, you know, obviously there are lots of good reasons to have an automatic license plate reader system. Um, the concern that you're pointing out from the Forbes article, um, which we're unclear if it's operating in the same way in Canada. Is this really interesting, but certainly very concerning combination of technologies? Uh, as we often see in the privacy and surveillance space, um, one technology by itself can be very powerful, but combining two distinct tools or even a number of them um, always sort of raise their, their their power and their capabilities. So with the case that you were talking about out of Westchester, New York, um, what's concerning is not just the you know automatic license plate reader, but the fact that the ALPR is being used in conjunction with uh, what we call an anomaly detection, right? It was being used right. to sort of look back at all of these different license plate records over uh, a two-year period from across New York uh, and judge based on a lot of data, a lot of records that are frankly irrelevant to any particular case, particularly this one person's case, right? So obviously we are concerned, uh, but in this instance, it's I wouldn't necessarily call it unique, but it is a concern. The concern largely comes from the combination of both technologies. Okay. I just want to also uh, alert our listeners that uh, after I finish uh, speaking with Daniel, what I'm going to do is open up the phone lines and ask you if you've ever received a questionable, in your mind, traffic fine, if you've ever received a questionable traffic fine. Now, I think it's ethically uh, unacceptable for police to have a pickup truck uh, as a radar unit. That's just not right. That's just, mm -hmm. that's just, uh, that's just unacceptable. Just, uh, that's just a personal comment of mine. But I, <laughs> I want to hear from our listeners uh, what they've heard. So we'll open the phone lines on that in a few minutes. But this this AI. Are you aware of this AI technology being used in Canada at all, Daniel? 
I know that anomaly detection is something that police use in their day to day. So, for example, the the use cases that I'm most familiar with are instances in which, um, you know, perhaps uh, cameras have been trained to capture what a certain area of the city might look like, let's say, uh, in order to identify something out of place. I think that this is something that sort of emerged uh, in the wake of 9-11 in an attempt to curb uh, potential terrorist attacks, if there's anything that looks sort of unusual, perhaps like a suspicious package or or something of that sort in a public place. Um, It's a chance to identify something out of place uh, while while having, you know, it compared to what is the quote unquote norm. Um, but the, but, but the, the biggest concern, and, and I'm not sure about whether or not this is, this is being used uh, in conjunction with ALPRs in Canada, which sort of reveals another thing about, about technology and policing in Canada is that it's very hard to, to know what is going on, largely because of certain um, freedom of information uh, restrictions that make it very difficult to get information about technologies like ALPRs, um, as well as requirements or the, the non-existence of requirements um, yeah. for police to disclose their use. You're, you're going um, to find people saying as well, though, hey, you don't do anything wrong, you're not going to be in trouble. And, and, and many people will say, hey, it's a great idea. So you have the artificial mm-hmm. intelligence. This is really just the tip of the iceberg as far as mm-hmm. police operations are concerned. Mm-hmm. And, and I will hear, and I know, I, and I've already heard it, that use, it's a useful technology to get the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you think it could be misused to snare the innocent? Yeah, it's, the big problem is that it naturally is a dragnet. Um, the term that is often used in surveillance studies is dragnet surveillance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was, uh, there's, a, there's a really juicy James Comey quote, um, which uh, was talking about, you know, if you're looking for a needle in a haystack, that might be the norm or, or what's usual for, for policing. But in order to do that, you often are going to have to figure out which pieces of hay might someday become needles, right? <laughs> in order to find yeah, that yeah, needle... Yeah. You then have to gather a lot of innocent hay. Um, And it's the gathering of all that innocent hay that is the concern for the CCLA. And that should be your concern um, in general. Even if you don't think that you have anything to hide, that's great. That doesn't mean you don't deserve some sort of semblance of privacy. Uh, It doesn't mean that you should have your information broadcast everywhere. It shouldn't mean that you... Your license plate should appear in databases yeah, you know, and without restriction, right? When, when I think about it, so I, I, I don't always take this the same route. It's mm-hmm. boring. I, try, I like to know what's going on in different parts of the city or the area where mm-hmm. I live for on the way to the radio station. I take different routes because I want to know yeah. what's what's happening. Mm-hmm. So if these, this AI equipment is out there and, and, and they're, let's say they just see me pop up on the camera over here and over there and over here and over there. Mm-hmm. Maybe the AI says, ah, this guy's interesting. <laughs> you know, this guy's interesting. He's showing up in different areas. And the people who show yeah. up in this different areas, the way this guy's showing up, and it's completely random uh, for me, mm-hmm. suggests a pattern to us. And so to the artificial intelligence unit or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then the police officer gets an alert. And the next thing I know, I'm pulled over. <laughs> Right. I mean, I mean, your 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 equivalent in the United States, the ACLU says um, uh, this kind of warrantless surveillance of citizens is quote quite horrifying end quote. Yeah, I would agree. 
Okay. Well, I thank you for joining us. We'll see where this all goes. Uh, I hadn't. I had no idea. I mean, I, I knew about the uh, the cameras that scanned license plates mm. as a cruiser was going around. I didn't know that they were checking out sixteen million plates a week. It Good, is quite a lot, Lord. What, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things that we'd have to be mindful of and, and hope to find out is how much of that information is being kept. Yeah. Right? What are the yeah. What is the retention on it? If yeah. some, if if an image of a license plate is captured, um, but it doesn't lead to a positive hit or a positive identification of a car that's linked to a crime or that's under suspicion, uh, that data should be purged um, so that yeah. there is so that there isn't Great any point. sort of extra information lingering about um, for no reason. We need to continue to put our very best foot forward and work even harder to deliver for Canadians. And having a renewed team uh, with a range of new voices and new skills and experience, new challenges for our strongest ministers to be able to step up and meet this consequential moment in the lives of Canadians. Uh, Mr. Trudeau and his cabinet, and of course he tore up the cabinet. This wasn't a shuffle, man. This was a... Uh, this was a... Uh, I tore it to pieces. You know, I mean, why did David Lametti get kicked out? I, I didn't like him as a attorney general or justice minister. Didn't like him at all. But I don't know what he did to deserve being turfed from cabinet. But uh, you know, we've seen that before with this prime minister. He doesn't like what you're doing. Doesn't like what you say. Doesn't like maybe if you challenge him. I don't know what happens behind closed doors. And then you're gone. He's got a very, I think he's got a very thin skin. Anyway, I, uh, and then we have the polling. Abacus polling, which shows the liberals losing ground significantly in all sectors of the country. And that is, uh, that's probably not making them happy either. And I pointed out about a few months ago that if you look at Mr. Trudeau's own numbers, his own popularity numbers in his own riding of Papineau in Montreal, he had a pretty good support level in 2015 when they elected a majority government. But by the time they got to the 2019 vote, Mr. Trudeau's support within his own writing was declining. Well, fewer, fewer voters in Papineau were voting for him. And it's very, it's almost unheard of that an incumbent prime minister would be losing votes in his or her own writing. Well, unless you're Kim Campbell, where they tossed you right out. But so that was 2019. Then in 2021, it happened again. He lost more of his vote in his own riding in 2021 over 2019. So, I mean, if I were uh, if I were the prime minister, I do a lot of things differently, but if I were the prime minister, I'd be paying very close attention to what's going on with the, uh, with the folks across the country. 39, and 39 cabinet ministers, good God. The question is, who isn't in cabinet? All right, let's talk to Michelle Simpson and Dan McTagg. They're both former liberal members of parliament. Michelle, of course, is on the program with us quite regularly with our Beauties and the Beast panel. And Dan's on the program frequently with us on fuel costs and um, what's happening with our energy issues. And you, uh, you know that Dan is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. That's becoming a more challenging job every day, Mr. McTagg. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I spend a lot of energy. I don't know why we're laughing. About energy. <laughs> Thanks, Roy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good to talk to you. Michelle, how are you? I'm fine. Good. How are you? <laughs> and Dan, how are you? I'm fine, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you, Roy, for having us both. Yeah, yeah, no, great. it's great to have you. So uh, let me ask you then to just give us a um, ground floor view of what's happening within the party you were members of and with the party you represented as members of parliament. What do you see going on? We have, uh, we have things being said that are quite challenging by the leaders within the Liberal Party uh, and by extension leaders of Canada. We have a, um, an American senator, Dan Sullivan of Alaska, um, and we'll talk about this next hour, who uh, in the confirmation hearings for the new NORAD commander, North American Air Defense commander, was talking really, uh, I mean, really challenging Mr. Trudeau and challenging the uh, Liberal government for their lack of spending and, uh, and quoting the Wall Street Journal story that at the NATO meetings, Canada should have been at the children's table. And I guess that irritated Mr. Trudeau because he came back and started talking about all the spending Canada is doing on, uh, on defense. Yeah, and that's why our soldiers, our soldiers in uh, Eastern Europe have to buy their own helmets and vests and belts. Anyway, so ground floor view, Michelle, let me start with you. Ground floor view, what's going on in this party? With the cabinet shuffle? Oh, everything. Uh, I think uh, there's a ton of desperation there because, as you put it, he ripped it to pieces. And desperation comes from he's reaching his shelf life of the government. And history is repeating itself that we went through, uh, after Paul Martin, two rather weak leaders, and then we got the star, Justin Trudeau, and now the conservatives have gone through two weak leaders and are pinning their hopes on Pierre Polyev. And I truly believe that uh, Justin Trudeau's reached the end of his, his tether. Yeah, so the uh, the expiry date has been reached, and I think many Canadians exactly. have come to that conclusion. I thought he was a lightweight from day one, and I remember the first time I actually tweeted out that uh, I thought that Justin Trudeau was a twit. Um, that was fairly early into his tenure. Boy, did I get leaned on by people. Man, I got it. Today, <laughs> that would be a rather mild criticism. Mr. McTagg, how do you, from the ground floor, you're the party that you were a member of and a member of parliament for for 18 years. Right. I think the wheels are coming off. I think mean, that's very clear. Um, other than Trudeau, there really isn't any other name. Any good name is fairly expendable. Um, surprised uh, not by uh, their performance as minister, but certainly their um, allegiance to Justin Trudeau. Marl Gabra being dumped. <laughs> now he says he's quitting, but look, he and Navdeep Baines and Mark Holland were best buds with uh, with Justin when, when Michelle and I were there. And they were part of the new crew. So obviously uh, the PM believes that uh, others are responsible for his shortcomings and the growing uh, despondency uh, that the public is now beginning to express towards this prime minister. And by the way, that, that, that covers Jagmeet Singh as well. I think his numbers are starting to very, very much show that his uh, cozying up to liberals and doing everything they want while at the same time screaming that uh, they're not doing things the way he likes and, you know, blaming them for it. 
that's really wearing thin with people. I think this is one of the main reasons why uh, you now are seeing, forget the pollsters, you're you're hearing a groundswell of people now starting to say it is truly time for this man to go. Uh, This should have been about Trudeau leaving. Uh, It's not about his ministers. Um, But he's not going to give a lot of room to ministers to do a whole heck of a lot. What I do think this is going to do, and I don't want to stretch beyond what Michelle has quite rightly pointed out, I think we're going to start to see some significant rumblings within the ranks to get rid of this man, this outrageous individual. And I think that's uh, the, uh, you know, those who are going to leave, that's fine. But I think there's some ministers here and others who are, frankly, to use the lack of a better term, cheese off, and uh, they're going to come after him. They have to, because it's time for him to go. I didn't mention, and I usually do, that uh, Michelle was a seatmate to Justin Trudeau when you both sat in, in opposition and he would uh, entertain you with whatever he brought into question period. Generally, it was about him. And so did you want to add, add anything to what Dan said before I ask another question, Michelle? No, I, I totally agree. And I, I think um, both parties can be guilty of this by centralizing all the power in the PMO mm-hmm. and minimalizing their ministers is coming back to haunt them. Exactly. It, this is about one man. It was about Stephen Harper in his time, and it was a, now it's about Justin Trudeau. And they they think by centralizing all this power and not spreading, you know, the government and letting people do their jobs, it's coming back to bite them in the butt. Do you think, as some people have said to me, and people who know their way around politics, I like to think I do as well, but... Uh, some people have said to me, look, this guy's a survivor. He'll, he'll find a way to win. And there have been people who have been critical of uh, Pierre Polyev, who actually like the conservatives and like Polyev, but say, I've said, look, all, he, everything out of his mouth is immediately a complaint about Trudeau. He has to stop that. He has to talk, start talking yeah. about who he is and what he's going to do and stop focusing on, the, on, on Justin Trudeau because it's starting to wear thin. Would you agree? Dan? Uh, you look, uh, the, the, uh, if you're a leader of the opposition, you have to, you, the, the prize is to go after the fellow who is the incumbent. And I would think that, you know, unfortunately for the Conservatives, I think they had a previous leader who did that, Mr. Nice Guy, and look where it got them. Although they did get a few more extra votes, uh, they wound up, uh, they got nothing for it. You need someone to come in who's got teeth and grit and uh, who's prepared to fight. Uh, that not only lets Canadians know that there is an alternative who's prepared to come after them. It also, I think, importantly, gives strength to the party that's pushing. And in the case of Mr. Polyev, a lot of people believe at the beginning that uh, they didn't like his way, didn't like his style, forgetting that his predecessor employed that style and with disastrous results. I think you've got to show your teeth. And uh, there's a time for policy. Uh, there's a time for reflection. I think that's called the election. Uh, but we know that that election is not going to happen for another year and a half, maybe even longer. Depends on what Mr. Singh does. But uh, as it stands now, I don't see how Mr. Polyev can play any other card, in fact, to demonstrate just how bad Justin Trudeau is doing. And, hey, listen, <laughs> it's working. Uh, Mr. Polyev's gone from 29% to 
his party. And, yeah, uh, I don't know. And I've questions. interviewed uh, Pierre Perlet quite a few times on this program. Never interviewed Justin Trudeau. We tried, and then we just gave up. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I don't know that it's so all about Pierre Polyev as, as much as it might be about uh, Justin Trudeau's poor performance. But it's just had Canadians look at him and say, well, no, not another four years. Who knows? Uh, Michelle, before we take the break, do you, how do you see this? Well, as the polls stand right now, it's Polyev's to lose. Right. He's trying to do a makeover. The problem is, I agree with Dan, you have to have some chutzpah, and you got to go after it as the opposition leader. But I think by singling out Trudeau, he can make Trudeau a bit of a victim because he, he is so toxic sometimes. So I, I agree with you, uh, Roy, that I think he has to back off, attack the government, attack their performance. But don't always say, Trudeau, it's his fault for this, that, and everything. Okay, so uh, have either of you been in touch with current or recent Liberal caucus members? And then how significant is the opinion of a backbencher? I know it's the gulag and backbenchers are expected to be quiet, but... As you, you suggested, Dan, that there could be a mutiny. So would you address that, both those points quickly for us? Well, look, I think it's, it's pretty clear in the discussions I've had with some Liberal MPs, and some being no more than two, and several former MPs, Liberal, and I say several, as in six or seven over the past couple of months, one thing keeps emerging, and that's the level of organization, the state of organization the Liberal Party is, is in disarray at the local level. It might be, well, at national level, but locally it's not doing very well. Riding associations or, uh, uh, you know, EDAs, electoral district associations are extremely anemic. And uh, it's coming down to really the, uh, the prime minister, his name, and, of course, uh, other things being considered equal, the economy holding up. Uh, because that's a critical factor here. The economy is slowing down. People are having a tougher time. It doesn't matter who's in power. Uh, governments uh, like the one Michelle and I belong to, <laughs> in fact, lost when the economy wasn't doing too bad. So, you know, we can talk about the near end of uh, time. I think the knives could very well come out for Justin Trudeau, uh, given the concentration of power, the decision to throw it to people. It's not just this time. I mean, think of people like Mark Garneau and others. Yeah, perhaps it was time they felt it was time to retire. But increasingly, I think there is a sense that the person needs to retire. And I, you know, this is not something I alone discover. I think it's pretty obvious to everyone. You know, you're, uh, you've been leader of the party since 2013, 10 years. Uh, the party will be eight years uh, in governance by the next election, 10 years. That's long in the tooth. And I think there's going to be a move likely within uh, to begin to push back. Uh, there really isn't that many more people to throw out. I mean, unless you want to get rid of Katie Telford, many people believe that would be a great thing to do. Uh, and some of the staff around there, it really comes down to, I think the Prime Minister is uh, past due. You know, his, his uh, okay. best before date is now passed. And I think it's becoming pretty clear that the Liberal Party will not be able to survive the right. election when and if that happens. All right, Michelle, what about uh, you being in contact with former Liberals? And uh, what, what impact... Does uh, let's let's say a group of backbenchers in the Liberal Party who want to be reelected? It's a good gig, and and look at look at the party. What impact would they have if they were to, you know, run up the mutiny flag? Well, I think they're going to start uh, picking sides in terms of the the uh, leadership contenders. 
not all, not all the backbenchers want to be leader necessarily, but they'll start picking sides. And yes, I've I've spoken to a few, and they are concerned because they understand that uh, you know the uh, biological clock of this government is fast expiring, and they do want to be reelected. So I think you will see, as Dan said, there it, there'll be a mutiny, and it will be who sides with whom in a leadership okay. race. Okay. And we saw a mutiny. <laughs> we saw an ugly mutiny, a civil war, actually, between the factions of uh, Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin. Not that yeah. we would, not that anybody present was part of that. Um, okay. Don't react. Dan, thank you, Mr. McTagg. <laughs> you, you held your fire nicely. Uh, thank you, I did, Dan. I did. <laughs> Thanks, Roy. Care, thank you, Michelle. Talk to you both soon. Dan should be leader. Uh, he just hung up. So there you go, Michelle. <laughs> there's, a, there's a response to that. The federal government is looking at or attempting uh, to lean uh, far out of their jurisdiction, far more than they uh, have in, in months and years gone by. And so that may be Minister Glow's intent, but I'm, I'm not sure he's going to be able to, to change the Constitution to have uh, his intent actually come to realization. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe on this program last weekend, uh, speaking about the Federal Environment Minister, Stephen Gilbo, the tower climber, uh, who will publish policy guidelines dictating the circumstances for the flow of future federal investment to Canadian oil and gas firms. That's what he says. New domestic oil and gas projects will receive federal funding only if the Trudeau government can reconcile them with Canada's climate commitments. So that was what uh, Premier Mo was responding to, and I just hear the irritation growing and growing in the Premier's voice as he joins us and he talks about this uh, current government, which has its sights set on the uh, energy industry and on agriculture, and particularly on uh, the western provinces of Saskatchewan and Alberta. Premier Mo was responding to a global news story which quoted Ken Coates, Professor Ken Coates of Yukon University. And uh, the professor is the author of so many great books. I mean, it's just, I don't know how you find all the time, Ken, to write the the books that you write, but they're they're wonderful. Well, of all the books you've written, let me just step aside completely. Which one do you like best? He wrote a history of the Yukon. That's where I'm from. And that was one of the ones that probably uh, closest to my heart in many ways. Um, but actually, more recently, I've been uh, doing a lot of stuff on post-secondary education and on economic development. And I guess the latter part is what's got me really exercised right now. Um, Canada is not doing a very good job economically, and I'm doing a lot of writing about that about how we can sort of get ourselves, get our act back together and build our prosperity back up to where it used to be. This is what, this is critical to our, uh, to our economic survival. We're in, we're in tough straits. So when, when the federal government uh, behaves the way it does, where it's side squarely on Saskatchewan and Alberta, and the premier of Saskatchewan uh, reacts the way he does, how serious, and this is what people need to understand, how serious is the situation in Western Canada, particularly the Prairie Provinces? How seriously are people taking this? And how fed up are the people in Saskatchewan? How fed up do you believe many of the politicians are with what's going on and what's coming their way from Ottawa? I think, I think the anger is, is very real and it's very, very deep. 
you have to realize that as of right now, there's the Liberals have almost no seats in Wyoming, two seats in Manitoba, two in Alberta, one in uh, one in um, nothing in Saskatchewan, and in British Columbia, the only seats they have are in the Vancouver and Lower Mainland, you know, sort of southeast corner, southwest corner of the province. They don't have much support in the in the in the middle in the center of the of the province at all. Those are NDP and Conservative seats, um, and I think the the lack of interest and lack of support for the Trudeau government is very powerful. Um, but I think it's also important. And you and I have talked about this a bit before that we not make this into sort of a a nice simple partisan kind of you know we've only got rid of Trudeau everything will be fine. The reality of it is is that Western Canadians are really frustrated with the fact that the rest of the country doesn't care what happens to them. It's not just what the federal government is doing. It's the fact that the federal government is doing this, and Ontario and Quebec are either complicit, uh, particularly in the, in the case of Quebec, or silent in the case of Ontario. Um, so the people in central Canada aren't speaking up very much. You're a, a bit of a solitary voice on this, as you well know. Um, and they're not really giving it the attention it deserves. This is This is the kind of stuff that sort of works away at the fabric of a nation. When you start realizing that a government is prepared to sacrifice one very large region, which produces most of our exports, most of our exports are energy exports, and the second sort of area is agriculture. We produce an enormous amount of agricultural produce that the world needs sort of desperately. But we're not getting the support from the government of Canada in those sectors. Uh, the government seems to think these are sort of passe, you know, industries of, of yesterday, not the industries of tomorrow. Um, and and you're willing to sacrifice the economic well-being of that region without realizing that you're also sacrificing the energy, or the, the vitality of uh, of the rest of the country. A couple of years ago, when I was doing more work on this in the in the oil sands, um, you know, there were 100,000 Ontario jobs that were every year that were dependent on the oil sands industry, and yet Ontario is silent on. It. I mean, I'm, I'm talking here about the government of Ontario, but the people of Ontario, but basically look at this and say, oh yeah, yeah, this is all climate change stuff, and let's do that without realizing the huge implications. Other nations, the United States, um, and Norway, Great Britain, aren't doing the same kinds of things. They, Yes, they're investing in renewable energy, and yes, we should invest in renewable resources as well. But we have to be far more rational and logical about how we're actually going to make this transition, because this so-called just transition has the potential to be a disaster and to cause a huge economic turmoil that we might not recover from economically for a generation or two. And that's just not part of the conversation. It's all, you know, you're not allowed to say anything uh, negative toward whatever the government chooses to do on climate change. But if the stuff isn't working, um, if not really reducing our our emissions in Canada, or if Canada's emissions reductions are not really going to have any more than a tiny impact on the world as a whole, you really have to wonder why we're doing it. Yeah, you asked in that uh, in that story, the global news story that was uh, that ran. Why the Trudeau government places entire, the entire burden of dealing with climate change on the backs of one part of this country, and you suggested place part of the burden on oil and gas consumption uh, in other parts of Canada. So you can place parts of the burden on oil and gas, but place it on consumption in other parts of Canada, if I understand it correctly. You do, you do, and and just imagine this. And imagine you know you know your your audience very very well, and you know the country very well. And imagine the reaction if the government said instead of instead of going after the oil producing part of the country, if the government said we're actually going to put a twenty percent tax on all heating fuels. They've actually been doing this through the carbon tax thing, but imagine a, an accelerated major tax on that. Or if they're going to work with the cities and put major taxes on driving cars 
into the downtown areas like they have in places like London, England, where you get punished and have to pay a very substantial amount of money for driving your car into, into certain kinds of areas. Um, imagine the reaction if all of a sudden the users of energy had to start paying for the climate change sort of amelioration sort of element. The way it works now is they'll pay, but they'll pay indirectly. What will happen is that energy will become more expensive as time goes along. And we're going to see, like with the, with the carbon taxes, that it adds into the cost of the food chain, it adds into the cost of groceries, it adds into the cost of transportation. But imagine if they just really stood out and said, we're going to demand that everybody reduce their energy consumption by 30%. And you're going to do that, making the numbers up. But imagine you're doing that in a country that has very, very cold winters mm -hmm. and has increasingly hot summers, particularly in southern Ontario, where you need air conditioning. The people in the rest of the country would be furious. So what happens instead is the government takes the revenue that's coming out of Western Canada and repurposes it into, into transit uh, investments in, in central Canada, in Montreal and Ottawa, Toronto areas and things of that nature. So the people in central Canada get, get help responding to climate change issues and, and transportation costs. The cost of doing that actually falls on in Western Canada, and, and, and it falls in a very imprecise kind of way. It's not as though Saskatoon itself is suffering. Saskatoon's prospering very well right now. But it's a whole series of small towns in northern Alberta and southern Saskatchewan where, you know, the, the, the drillers just pull up their shops and they, they reduce the spending and they stop the investment. They're cutting back on drilling. These are the jobs that are the lifebloods of hundreds and hundreds of communities. And quite frankly, nobody in the country seems to care about what's happening to these places. And these are good small towns. They've propped up the Keating economy for generations. They've made us a more prosperous nation. They actually fueled much of our economic expansion for the last 40 years. And to all of a sudden just say, well, we're going to not do that anymore with a, with a very ill-considered plan. The government, not just this government, the previous governments have not met any other climate plans since the Kyoto Accord. We're not doing very well at actually even, even holding ourselves to account in that particular regard. Um, and we're not having much of an impact on the world. The world is not paying attention uh, to Canada much as the government likes to claim it is. And um, the world is paying a lot more attention to other places than they are to this country. Um, you grew Thank up in you. Whitehorse, right? I grew up in Whitehorse and I get to go home. It's a, a great, wonderful treat. Yeah, it's a it's it's a terrific way to live. Although I don't know what you guys do in the winter time. Can't you just drive your little electric cars off to the south? <laughs> That's <laughs> when you hear people talking about electric cars, and you go up to the Yukon where it gets fifty degrees below in the winter time, and there's a hundred kilometers between towns. In many instances, the electric model uh, just doesn't not quite ready yet. Um, yeah. Maybe ten years from now, maybe twenty years from now. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but the uh, demand for electric vehicles has been falling quite a bit. The early adopters and the status-oriented people have purchased their EVs, but I'm not sure that the, everybody else is lined up behind them. And that's with very substantial subsidies. You know, this is not happen, happening naturally. It's happening a bit unnaturally. Um, there's an awful lot of reasons why, why uh, you know, gasoline-powered, diesel-powered cars are, and trucks are, are beneficial. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're, just, we're just jumping too fast into all of this. And like you said just before the break, I'm really worried that this is actually going to drive a schism between in the country. That that you know, at some point these these tensions become sort of almost unstoppable. And this one is you know you're taking the very prosperity of of the West, attacking it at its root. Um, the indirect attack on agriculture is actually quite significant as well, and, and that's not not it's not inconsequential in the West, but it's getting almost no notice in the country as a whole. Um, and at some point, 
you know, I don't want to be apocalyptic about it, but people eventually say enough is enough. And the last time we went down this kind of a path, and ironically, it was with uh, uh, with Justin Trudeau's father. Um, you know, Pierre Trudeau managed to alienate the West quite and quite dramatically, and basically eliminated the Liberal Party as a power of any substance in Western Canada. Um, now we were getting that same place again. The last time we got the Reform Party, um, this time we might get something far nastier. You know, the the, the anger um, outside of sort of the standard political system where you have conservatives against the Liberals and the NDP and whatever else. But there's also a bunch of, of sort of a more fringe parties right now, the Buffalo parties and different kinds of Western separatist parties sort of out there sort of organizing and talking and getting people upset and, 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 and agitating for more action, using social media very effectively. And my gracious, the government gives them lots of reasons to sort of get mad. Yeah. Now, may I quote an email that you sent me a few days ago? You bet. And and I and I related to you how I was president of Quebec when René Levesque gave personality to the Quebec sovereignty issue, and I was there for the election of the first PQ MNAs, and I knew Mr. Levesque, the Premier Levesque, and when he was a reporter, I was a kid getting started. I was a teenager, and he was a an established reporter, and he had a great presence in Quebec, and he drove that uh, that sovereignty movement just based on his personality. But, you know, you you talk about the, the, the issues that exist between the East and the West and the lack of support from the East or Central Canada for the West, and, and, and you point to another um, situation that... And let, let me just read your email. Um... Imagine this scenario. The Liberals appoint a Minister of Industry with a mandate to reduce emissions produced by manufacturing and processing. The focus would be on manufacturing and processing plants in Ontario and Quebec. Can you imagine such a thing? That really struck home. It hurts, doesn't it? Well, it certainly got my attention. And it would get the attention of, certainly get the attention of everyone in Ontario and Quebec. By the way, can and, I have on occasion, I've asked people in this province, I mean, I'm located in Ontario. I've asked people in Ontario for their thoughts and their, uh, their, their sense of Western Canada. And the responses I've had have been very positive and very supportive of Western Canada. That's from the people I've heard from in this, in, in this part of the world. It hasn't always been that way from governments, but, uh, but certainly uh, I, 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 cannot, I can't imagine what, what the response would be in immediately if suddenly the Trudeau government were to say, all right, so we have a Ministry of Industry. The mandate is to reduce emissions produced by manufacturing and processing. Go get them. But, but you know what? That's how Western Canadians feel about what they've done with the resource sector, right? And so, ironically, the federal government's also talking about the ring of fire because they, they admit the critical minerals they get will get in, or may get in northern Ontario will actually feed into the EV, EV industry. So the inconsistency here is quite is quite dramatic. But, you know, if you had a scenario like that where the, where the Minister of Industry sort of went after those processing plants and the manufacturing activity and all these small towns and St. Thomas's of the world that are just getting used to a multi, multi-billion dollar, you know, sort of subsidy for a, for a battery plant, all of a sudden see those batteries, those battery plants and other things sort of closing down, people would be appalled. They'd be, you know, furious beyond belief. And the, the reality is, is that politically, the government can not only afford not to have any much, very much support in Western Canada, they're not, not going to get any, they're not going to get much more, um, but also that attacking Western Canada seems to work. 
yeah. particularly in yeah. Toronto and Montreal and Ottawa. Can, that the more they go after the resource economy, the more they are, are seen as being sort of really good Canadian governments. We'll have to. And that's really that really hurts. We'll have to pick this one up again. I, it's an issue that really deserves and needs to be heard and needs to be talked about. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 